Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the articles, Impact of a Pharmacist-Led Telehealth Oral Chemotherapy Clinic, Description of Telepharmacy Services by Emergency Medicine Pharmacists, and Evaluation of a Remote Hybrid Staffing Model for Ambulatory Clinical Pharmacists in a Pediatric Health System During the COVID-19 Pandemic, which were recently published on HHP.org. Our guests today are Dr. Tristan Myers, Oncology Clinical Pharmacist and PGY2 Oncology Residency Program Director, Geisinger Health System, Dr. Alicia Matson, Emergency Medicine Pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kristen Barron, an Advanced Patient Care Pharmacist at Nationwide Children's Hospital. First up is Dr. Tristan Myers, Oncology Clinical Pharmacist and PGY2 Oncology Residency Program Director at Geisinger Health System. We'll be discussing the team's article entitled, Impact of a Pharmacist-Led Telehealth Oral Chemotherapy Clinic. Tristan, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hi, Dan. Thanks to be a part of this conversation today. It's great to have you here. Let's start off right away because one of the areas of focus for the clinic that you and your colleagues talk about at the beginning of your article are the actual risks of non-adherence for the oral oncolytic agents, what places people at risk for non-adherence? I think it's such a paradigm shift. You know, back in the day, we were just doing IV chemotherapy. A patient would be coming to the clinic. You know, we'd be able to see the actual administration of the medication. And we knew that the patients were getting exactly what had been prescribed. Now that paradigm has shift as we see this influx of new oral chemotherapy, new targeted agents. And so now we have to rely on our patients to take the medication at home without us actually seeing any part of the process. So it's really important now to stress compliance to patients because patients now are now going through their day. Are they gonna take their medication in the morning or are they gonna be hungry in the morning? They're gonna go take their food and then they're gonna forget about their oral chemotherapy. So we really try to emphasize the importance of compliance because that's the reason and the way that we know that patients are getting the therapy, and we know that the drug is working for their cancer. So we really stress to our patients, and we'll talk about a little bit um, through the conversation, you know, to make sure that the patients are getting the best therapy, and we know that the drug is working, or do we need to switch to a different medication because it's not working? Got it. So how did the oral chemotherapy clinic at Geisinger get started? Well, like all good projects, it starts with a residency uh, <laughs> project. This was started in 2013 by our first PGY2 oncology resident, Jenna Carmichael, and her RPD at the time, Ann Carosis. They noticed that the influx of oral chemotherapy had just started, and they saw, along with our providers, that it was going to be hard seeing the patient on a constant basis to monitor these patients. So, Pharmacy was luckily able to get involved really at that ground floor. And, you know, we had just really one resident looking at a couple patients a day, looking at some of the labs, tox checks, education in our central region of Geisinger here in central Pennsylvania. Very bare bones, but 
really led to the program that it is today. So you said bare bones and now the program that is today. So what does that program look like at this point? Yeah, I mean, we are very blessed here at Geisinger to have physicians that really see the value of the pharmacist. Now, you know, we started with really one resident to now four pharmacists looking at over 120 to 140 patients a day, purely through telepharmacy. We have two technicians that handle a lot of the administrative work, scheduling, they do meta reconciliations, are able to filter some of those calls that are coming into the clinic from our patients and able to sometimes address rescheduling labs, sending them to their specialty pharmacy and able to allow the pharmacist to do that clinical work. We're doing really every part of the oral chemo process. We're doing that education. We're doing labs. We're looking at providing supportive care based on toxicity checks. We're uploading our oral chemotherapy into our electronic medical record so that we have good documentation. And we're collecting data to uh, allow ourselves to continue to grow and to then be able to share that information with other sites so then they can run with that information and create programs of their own. So you emphasize that it's really a telepharmacy visit, but are there situations where you actually see the patient in some dual way, both by telepharmacy, but also in clinic, for example? You know, before the pandemic, we did see some of our patients. So for instance, KPOX, which is IV oxaliplan, in addition to oral capecitabine, we were able to see patients in clinic because we knew that they were going to be there. Once the pandemic happened, we did try to limit our personal kind of exposure um, with our patients. Now we hopefully soon will be getting back to a time where we can see our patients because we really develop a long relationship with these patients. As people go through second, third, fourth line, we sometimes follow the patient their entire course of chemotherapy. And we really develop a, a collaborative kind of nature with our patients, really personal. I have had patients ask me about how is my newborn doing to, oh, you know, thank you for recommending that restaurant. So we really, in addition to helping them with their chemotherapy, we want to make sure that they know that we're there on a personal level to really develop that collaborative nature with our patients. It's pretty impressive for a telehealth visit to be able to develop such a personal rapport with your patients. Now, you mentioned that there are a number of other team members involved. And so Mm -hmm. students and residents, talk more about their roles and the learning experience for a student or resident as part of the telehealth program or telepharmacy, I should say. Yeah. As I said, you know, learners are really the backbone of pharmacy. And so we want to make sure that our students and residents are really able to see the extent of the patient care that pharmacists can provide when dealing with oral chemotherapy. So for our residents, we kind of do that normal preceptor model where they kind of watch us, we kind of coach them, model, and then eventually as they get more familiar with the drugs, we work on getting them to be that independent practitioner. We really start with some of those smaller disease states that are a little bit easier to kind of understand. So we start with like prostate cancer, we'll look at those prostate cancer medications. We might then go move to colon cancer because we have a lot of patients on colon cancer. And 
they can have that repetitive nature of being able to understand, like for instance, capecitabine or regorafenib and being able to understand those side effects and how to use supportive care to help those side effects. For our students, it is a little more of the pharmacist being there and coaching, but getting them exposure to really what pharmacists can do in oncology. I think our API students get a lot of surprise as for curriculum in schools across the country. They don't get a lot of oncology focus. And I think being able to kind of see this new avenue of where oncology pharmacists can play a role can really jumpstart careers for our students. And we've seen a huge influx, honestly, over the last couple of years, because we're able to have more impact on the learners in their APIs so that when they're looking at, say, residencies, post-graduation employment, they're now taking oncology into consideration. Got it. So what's the experience been with the clinic overall? I think from our clinic experience, we're really seeing the impact of the pharmacists in oral chemotherapy. Looking at our article, for instance, you know, we've in that two year, a little less than two year time period, we saw more than 2000 distinct patients, which resulted in over 45,000 interventions, which looking at it per day, that's almost 140 interventions per day. That could include anything from dose modifications to coordinating care for labs, for doing a med reconciliation, sending refills, looking at new drug interactions. And I think it just really shows that we can have a significant impact in that patient care. You know, we're able to hold medications when they're neutropenic. We're able to refer patients to other specialties if they need, say, ear or eye visits to monitor for side effects. We've actually caught significant issues and had to send patients to the emergency department. So we're really able to be there kind of in the weeds with the patients and seeing them more frequently than the providers really have the capabilities for at this time. And I think that it's really shown the value to our patients, shown the value to our providers, and that's why we continue to grow over time. Well, thanks for that description of the oncology program at Geisinger, Tristan. And with that, we're going to switch gears. And up next is Dr. Alicia Matson emergency medicine pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic, whose team authored the article entitled Description of Telepharmacy Services by Emergency Medicine Pharmacists. Alicia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you today. I wanted to start by asking you really about the overall telemedicine services that are provided through the emergency department at the Mayo Clinic, because they, they really do seem to be quite comprehensive. Can you talk about those a bit? Yeah, so at Mayo in Rochester, which is our main like campus and tertiary center, we have uh, teleemergency medicine built in within our emergency department, and we provide assistance to all of our health system emergency departments around the area, so in rural Minnesota and Wisconsin. 
And the physicians are available and now pharmacists, because we are now 24-7 as well, are available 24-7 for consult for these smaller health system emergency departments. And the point really is to provide increased patient care at the bedside in some of these areas with less resources. So we can do things like help decrease the cognitive burden by sort of leading some of these maybe like more critical patient resuscitations, um, allowing for the provider at the bedside to do sort of bedside care and procedures and things. We can help with like, from a pharmacist perspective, help with medication recommendations, monitoring. A lot of times in some of these smaller critical access sites, there's not, there's only a couple nurses. And so we will help with teaching them on the spot how to mix like an epinephrine infusion for a patient post-arrest, really anything we can do to sort of help the team at the bedside from a cognitive standpoint. So a very different approach to telepharmacy than our first discussion with Tristan, because you were talking with the other health professionals in outlying emergency departments. One of the things that I noted as I read your article was there was a a discussion of how the implementation of technology progressed over time and what type of technology supports the, the program and the ability to interface as you do with other emergency departments? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we first started our telemedicine services, we had different EMRs at different locations, which made it a little difficult. All of the consults came through our admission and transfer center. So they would call someone there and then they would let us know that there was a call. Now we have transitioned our Mayo is is all epic for our electronic medical record now. So I can easily change context in my epic to see the ED patients and all of the different health systems when they call. We also can utilize secure your chat, which is an easy way to get back to providers. Like it's not always these very acute sick patients that they're asking us questions about. Sometimes it's a simple question about a discharge antibiotic or looking into could this uh, problem that they're having be secondary to a medication. So we take some time, look into it and get back to them. It's a very easy way to get back to them through Epic Secure Chat as opposed to trying to call them when they might be busy with other patients. So we utilize Epic a fair amount. And then our platform for our like real-time audiovisual resuscitations is called Teladoc. So there's like a little computer robot thing kind of in all of these health system EDs that has a camera and then a screen so that they can see us. And then we have a room in our emergency department where we can log in and on the same platform and we can see all that's happening in these emergency department rooms. We can talk with the providers. We can zoom in on things like the bedside monitor to see what their rhythm is, what their blood pressure is. There's technology that allows them to plug in for um, like bedside ultrasound. So that shows up right on the screen. Same thing with the video for like intubation. So providers can help and have a better visual of what's going on. Um, And so that's the platform that we use for the real-time sort of resuscitation patients. And it works pretty well. It's just really impressive, the role of technology and how it supports. I can recall when telemedicine was 
in its early days over 20 years ago and uh, we just didn't have the types of technology resources that we have today you've mentioned a couple of times the role in resuscitation mm -hmm. and you've you've made some specific references to being able to see what's going on during intubation for example but can you talk more about how the telemedicine team contributes to resuscitation care and, and specifically the pharmacist role because i i just find this fascinating that the ability to be successful in consulting on a resuscitation effort through technology from a distance. Yeah. So it can depend what our role is, depending on what, what is going on for that specific patient and the comfortability of that specific team. So at the most, sometimes we'll be sort of the team leaders as the telemedicine team. So let's say it's a code. Oftentimes I'm the one that's keeping time for the medications, recommending what that next medication is. I've learned through a lot of experience that, especially with a lot of their experience, the more specific I can be. So telling them exactly what to give, what type, what dose, sometimes even where to give it. I can help by looking up compatibilities so we can know what to run and what line. You can look at patient history to try find a potential reason why some of these things are happen happening to better understand what's happening with the patient. Sometimes uh, when there's lots of them going on at once, we might also transition into the team lead sometimes to help, especially like post-arrest monitoring and titrating of vasopressors while the team is either maybe, you know, helping another patient or trying to arrange transport. So that's another thing that we can sort of, sort of take off of the bedside team. The providers often do the arranging of transport, whether it be helicopter or ground, to get that patient to a higher level of care. And so we can help with all of that. Sometimes we'll put in orders for medications too, so that they can chart. Part of our telemedicine recess team is a, a nurse that can take away the documentation that they have to do at bedside. So our, our telemedicine nurse does the documentation for these recess. So we can help make sure that they have orders to document on and things like that as well. You talked about being the, the team lead in certain situations, and it seems to me that that really speaks loudly to the relationship between the emergency medicine pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic and the emergency physicians you're working with side by side there, as well mm -hmm. as the nurses and the physicians and nurses who are at the remote site. Is that something that developed over time, that level of confidence that moved the program in that direction where sometimes the pharmacists are the team lead? Yeah, I think that it has developed over time. You know, we're really lucky here. I've been here for seven years now in the emergency department, and there is a great respect for uh, EM pharmacists at the bedside. A lot of our providers in the health system are former residents of ours who trained with us. So they have a good understanding of, of sort of uh, how we can be helpful and what our role is. So I think that's a big deal too. And then I think the consistent exposure, you know, over the past four plus years that we've been doing this as they have sort of seen how we can be helpful. Their confidence has grown with what we can do. And I think has caused them to, to use us more, to know what they can ask us questions for and things like that. Got it. Got it. So what have the outcomes of the program been thus far? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we collect the number of 
consults we get and we've looked at the number and type of recommendations that we have made to sort of see where we can make impact. We've utilized this to sort of help gain some additional FTE. You know, right now we're doing this all on top of taking care of our patients in our Rochester site. We don't have a dedicated shift for telemedicine. So our hopes are as we continue to see uh, more and more usage of us for this, that we can continue to justify additional FTE. You know, in the end, it would be really nice to have an EM pharmacist in all of these sites. You know, that's not possible right now, but the health system has continued to sort of work towards that with some of our larger health systems starting to get more EM pharmacists at the bedside. And we also have looked at what type of interventions we have made. So was it part of a resuscitation? Was it a simple like antibiotic recommendation or a drug dosing change because of patient-specific factors and things like that? Yeah, and it's interesting as I think about, and ASHP has been quite involved in advancing pharmacy services in the emergency department for almost 20 years now. And one of the questions was always, you know, how can you provide services to every ED? It's not practical. And it seems like programs like this really can advance that. Well, with that, we're going to move on for our last discussion. And I, so the listeners know, I've been noting some nice questions that I'd like to really ask the entire team because there are some common themes here. But before we get to that, our final discussant is Dr. Chris. Kristen Barron, who's an advanced patient care pharmacist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, will be discussing her team's article, Evaluation of a Remote Hybrid Staffing Model for Ambulatory Clinic Pharmacists in a Pediatric Health System During the COVID-19 Pandemic. So welcome, Kristen. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. At Nationwide Children's, there was a pretty rapid shift to telepharmacy as a result of COVID-19 in that first month after the pandemic uh, was established. And how did that occur? How did the team there make that quick transition to telepharmacy? Yeah, so the transition occurred much more rapidly than I think any of us had expected So back in March of 2020, when social distancing precautions really became widespread, our hospital leadership made that crucial decision to move as many staff as possible to a work from home setting. And really at the time, that move was unprecedented, considering that majority of the employees, including most clinical staff who provide direct patient care, had never previously worked remotely. And ultimately, I think the success of the move was really due to a completely hospital-wide initiative to rapidly implement telemedicine services in an effort to avoid any disruptions in the continuity of our patient care. So part of that initiative included department leadership, you know, very quickly taking inventory of what employee supplies and technology they had, and then pushing out resources to employees who needed it. So things like laptops, headsets, software installation, all of that happened very quickly. The other crucial piece was the education and training on how to use those new video conferencing um, and telemedicine technologies. So Communication was crucial. Our hospital would disseminate educational resources to the staff via 
institution-wide emails. They also created a resource on our intranet page that was updated daily. And they opened a support hotline that could be used for both employees and patients and families to troubleshoot and ask questions to IT experts about this new technology that most of us had never used before. Each department and clinic itself, you know, switched all meetings to virtual and held training sessions to discuss how to use this technology and how to change the workflow in order to best take care of our patients. In regards to pharmacy specifically, our specialty pharmacy team was one of the first adopters of the work from home staffing. Just due to the nature of our workflow, we historically rely heavily on telephone encounters to do a lot of our daily activities. So all of our staff had either moved to work from home or a hybrid staffing, you know, even before the end of March. And I would say all of that was really due to some tireless efforts by our leadership team and then great flexibility and adaptability of our pharmacy staff really at the beginning of the pandemic. So you mentioned the specialty pharmacy focus and there's cross coverage that you describe in the article between the specialty clinics and the specialty pharmacy program. Can you talk about that a bit more? Because this is a bit more of a hybrid model, isn't it? Yeah, so our specialty pharmacy has five full-time ambulatory clinical pharmacists, and we each specialize in one or more pediatric subspecialties. So that includes specialties like endocrinology, which I am a part of, rheumatology, neurology, pulmonology, etc. And as clinical pharmacists, we work in those specific ambulatory medical specialty clinics where we have the ability to meet with patients and families in person. And then also we collaborate directly with that clinic's multidisciplinary team to provide what we consider to be comprehensive medication management services. So that might include activities like appropriate medication selection based on patient-specific factors, insurance factors, lots of education, so medication counseling, injection teachings, drug monitoring, lab recommendations, sometimes adherence assessments or interventions. When we're in clinic, a large majority of our medication management involves specialty medication. So drugs like growth hormone, anti-inflammatories, CFTR modulators, anti-epileptics. And this is what really connects us to the specialty pharmacy team. So on days when we're not in clinic up with our subspecialty team, we work in the specialty pharmacy call center and assist with duties in that workflow. So that could include comprehensive medication assessment calls that we routinely make to patients who are enrolled in our specialty pharmacy and receive medications from us. We also do patient medication, more counseling, and help problem-solving medication issues while we're in there as well. And really, we see our role as the bridge between our specialty pharmacy and the multidisciplinary team in our specialty clinics. I think that having established relationships with both teams really is pivotal 
in allowing more of a streamlined communication and more efficient problem solving, which we really feel impacts patient care positively. So you developed a study to evaluate the telepharmacy program. What were your study objectives? Yeah, so in the beginning, a little background, our clinical pharmacist team moved to that hybrid staffing model um, at the end of March 2020. And that staffing model allowed us to either work on-site or off-site, which was home. And on-site staffing really depended on clinic and patient need. The goal was to promote social distancing as much as possible. So if we didn't have to be at the hospital, we tried to stay at home. So when we worked offsite at home, the telemedicine services, either telephone or via video, were utilized for all of our uh, direct patient interactions. What we found was, you know, months into this, that there wasn't really much literature out there comparing various clinical activities like injection trainings, med education, drug information inquiries when pharmacists completed them remotely versus when they completed them on site in the workplace. So we really felt we had a unique opportunity to sort of analyze the pharmacist's time spent on those types of activities while working remotely versus on site. And then our primary objective was simply to describe and quantify the types of patient care activities that we were performing on a daily basis in that hybrid staffing model. And then we further categorized each activity into different categories like telemedicine appointments, in-clinic appointments, what we call our specialty pharmacy call center tasks, drug information inquiries. I would say that we, in order to quantify all that, we implemented a time-based survey to assess the type of activity, the location of where the activity was performed, and then the time spent for each pharmacist to do that activity. So what did you find? So uh, first off, we found that as expected, we completed the majority of our activities off-site. We also found that even though we were working most often at offsite locations, the majority of the activities we were completing were still directly related to patient care. And then we also found that no clinic related task that we were completing at home took longer to complete offsite as compared to when we were completing it onsite. So sort of based on all of those findings, we came to the conclusion that a hybrid staffing model allows pharmacists to efficiently perform direct patient care activities, even if they're not physically meeting with a patient in clinic in person. What's interesting is I listened before to Tristan and then Alicia. Alicia was talking about the interaction with other health professionals at a remote site. And I think it's fair to say, Tristan, the majority of the, the patients are adult patients. But here, this is a telepharmacy program in a children's hospital. And I'm just sort of interested in that dynamic between the child and their parent and the overall telepharmacy experience. A great question. The overall experience, I would say, varies significantly from family to family and child to child. I think telemedicine in a pediatric population 
kind of presents a unique challenge and that the visits do involve multiple individuals aside from just the patient. So you might have parents sometimes in telemedicine, if mom and dad are in separate homes, they're each joining separately. You may have extended family participating, other caregivers like home health aides or nurses on the calls. And we really try to tailor each visit to each patient and their family and their specific needs and learning preferences. Also, depending on the age of the child, of course, we try to directly engage the patient, which, as you can imagine, can be a little bit difficult in a virtual environment. I really think for us, teach back is vital to ensure that the caregivers and sometimes the patient, again, depending on age, understand the medication plan. Also, during the pandemic, we've had to be a little bit creative and think outside the box on how we can still provide hands-on experiences for services. So, for example, injection trainings, we used to do these in clinic with practice or demo devices. So families would have the opportunity to practice giving an injection, you know, using a fake device and fake skin pad prior to giving the injection to their child. One way that we were able to kind of get around that and our um, GI pharmacist specifically developed a practice where she would send a medication trainer directly to the families in advance of the training so that they could practice with that device prior to administering the actual med to their child during that visit. Fascinating. The dynamics are, are, are really fascinating. It's impressive work. Before we wrap up, I'd like to bring all three of you in because there are some common themes here, and I'd be interested in your experiences and perspectives. And I'll, I'm going to start off. Tristan made a comment that was on my mind, talked about how the program at Geisinger has stimulated thinking on the part of students to even pursue residency and think about oncology. And I'm wondering, Alicia and Kristen, have you had similar experiences I, in terms of students and residents being engaged in your programs? And has it, in fact, influenced their career decisions in some way? Our students and residents engage in the telemedicine practice as it comes up during their rotation. The nice thing about that is we can both be logged in and sort of do it together. They can watch us and then sort of take the lead as their rotation progresses. I think it's definitely a unique experience. I'm not sure if it's specifically that specific experience has caused them to go down the ER pathway, but I think that it has helped sort of increase their exposure to what the options are for sure. Absolutely. Kristen? I would agree with Alicia. I think it's given us telemedicine services have given us a unique opportunity for students and residents to be part of those patient care interactions. We do the same thing with our students and residents where they're able to be on the visit at the same time as us and slowly we can give them more independence. I'm not sure if telemedicine in general has pushed anybody toward pediatrics, but I do think we see a lot of pharmacy students and residents who are inspired probably by some of the excellent patient care relationships we've developed. And I think ultimately that sometimes can push them toward a career in this setting. Question for all of you, when you think about yourselves or your trainees, 
Is there a different set of communication skills that are required? And, and Kristen, we certainly just a moment ago talked about engaging with young children, possibly via telepharmacy, but across the board, have you had to adjust your communication skills? And I'm thinking, you know, Tristan and Kristen in your direct interface with patients and their families, and and Alicia, even for the interaction with a healthcare professional who's remote to you, who's on the other side of a video screen. Who wants to go first? I can start. I guess looking at it from, I guess, communication with our patients first. You know, we handle in oncology talking to both patients and caregivers. We handle talking with patients who are curative or palliative. And I think it requires a a good understanding of goals. You know, in oncology, we really try to emphasize goals of care. And I think the way we communicate to our patients is by knowing what their end goal is. Do they want to continue to go through therapy? Do they want to continue to get drugs to help with side effects? Or can we facilitate with the discussion with their oncologist that maybe we need to have a new medication or do we need to talk kind of that end-of-life hospice care. And so I think by creating that and establishing that relationship with our patients, we can always make sure that we have the best of intentions for those patients in the way we communicate with them. And I think they feel that when we communicate with them, they're heard and they we understand what the end goal really is. What I hear you saying, am I getting this right, that the skill set, whether you're in person with the patient in clinic or engaging with them via a telepharmacy, the, the skill set's pretty similar. Most definitely. I think that it's really just having that conversation person to person and establishing that rapport. You know, it's a little bit harder when you are virtual, but that really makes your job a little more adventurous because we have to really use everything that we have to really build that relationship. Versus if we see them in person, it's easier to have that eye contact to know that they're listening, that they're understanding. And so it just takes a little more effort on our side, whether it is, you know, as was mentioned, you know, the teach back or having that kind of lighthearted conversation during the discussion of talking about toxicities. It takes a little more effort on the pharmacist part, I think, but I think it's still very much doable, whether you're in person or virtual. So, Kristen, we talked about the pharmacists covering both specialty clinics, specialty pharmacy, the specialty clinics, and then a telepharmacy dimension to all of this. And so same question for you. Does it take a different set of communication skills as you traverse those different environments or is it really translatable? I think in many ways it's translatable and the core communication skills that you use with patients in person are much the same as you would use via telemedicine appointments or, you know, virtual appointment. I do think that you really need to employ really great listening skills, though, in these types of interactions, as Tristan mentioned you can't always see some of the nonverbal body cues that patients are giving you. So you really need to listen to what they're saying and get their feedback. And that's why I think teach back is critical because, you know, a patient can say, yes, I understand this, but I really need them to repeat back 
what the plan is. So I know that they fully understand it and are on board with it. So I think it's listening to patients, you know, working with them and making sure they really understand the plan of care, you know, when we're communicating it virtually versus compared to when we see them in person in clinic. Alicia, what about you? So when you're next to a physician in the ED, talking with them about care of a patient or interacting with them in the midst of the resuscitation, or if you're interacting with them via telemedicine, any differences in your communication style? I think sometimes when we're interacting with them through telemedicine, you know, we can't go and see the patient at bedside if it's like a phone call or something like that. Um, we can't see what the environment is in the ED. Is it really busy? Is it hectic or is it calm? Sometimes you can tell by the tone of voice in the provider, but I think learning what questions to ask so that we have the information we need to answer whatever question that we have, and then understanding how fast they need the answer. Is it something that I can get back to them? Is it something I need to look up right now and they want to stay on the the phone line as I figure that out? Or can I get back to them via epic chat. We also have to learn how to triage what our patients are in front of us in in our main sites. Like if I'm in the recess room for a patient on site, how can I can effectively communicate to them that I can get back to them once I'm done with this specific patient. And then I think in those active video calls of maybe a sicker patient, just learning to be very direct and specific in what the recommendation is. So it's not vague. The other thing we have to sort of, especially when we're teaching our residents and students is understanding what resources they have at these rural sites because they're very different than what we have here in Rochester. And so knowing what they have easy access to and what they can easily give or pull out of their Pixis machine versus what would have to be compounded at bedside and sort of making those decisions based on those sorts of things too is something we have to adjust when we're working in these other sites. Got it. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Drs. Myers, Matson, and Barron for joining us today to discuss their articles, which were recently published on AJHP.org and will be included in the AJHP telehealth theme issue. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.